Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Health officials had predicted that the local coronavirus wave would crest this week. We don't know for sure. It's hard to say we've hit the peak until time has passed and we see the overall trend. But it's possible that recent days have been as bad for local hospitals as as things will get. At least we hope so. So what does that look like? Well, joining us today to talk about it is Dr. Kristen Mueller. She's an emergency medicine physician at Barnes-Jewish Hospital. Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and Barnes-Jewish West County Hospital. And she's also an assistant professor of emergency medicine at Washington University's School of Medicine. So, Dr. Mueller, welcome to the show. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. So, we're hoping you can sort of be our eyes and ears today. What have recent days felt like there in the emergency room? Sure. It's certainly been a different experience than um, our pre-COVID times. If anything, our volumes or the number of patients who come through the door every day has been significantly less than normal. We're only seeing about half of our usual patients or just a little bit above that, Hmm. the usual number of patients per day. So we've actually had a lot more capacity or availability to see patients and see them quickly than we might at other times when our resources have been strapped a little bit more thinly. And that comes from a bunch of different reasons and in large part, um, huge efforts from our hospital and university administrations to try and maximize our availability to be ready to um, care appropriately for patients who do come in with the COVID virus. So do you have more more people um, working right now than you would in an average shift, even though the volume is lower? Um, So we do have a number of surge plans in place. We've been able to maintain our regular staffing models, so having the same number of doctors and nurses working right now. Um, But we have a number of surge plans in place, and that includes opening up additional ICU units, additional COVID-specific wards in the hospital. Um, We even, between Barnes and Children's Hospital, have created plans to utilize the ICU at Children's Hospital if necessary for adult patients if we exceeded our capacity at Barnes. Hmm. But so far, none of those resources have been necessary. We've put a lot of plans in place, and we are well-equipped right now to meet the needs of our patients in St. Louis. Well, that's great to hear. Um, And are you continuing? I mean, you say that your overall volume is way down, so people are still coming in with things other than COVID-19 symptoms. There's just a lot fewer of them? Correct. So the emergency department for a lot of people is, number one, the place where you would come for care if you're having a life-threatening emergency, like a heart attack or stroke. But we're also the safety net for health care for a lot of patients in our region. And we are still open to provide all the full spectrum of medical services. And I would especially encourage patients who are feeling ill to not stay at home and to please do come and come be seen in the emergency department or access health care in other ways through your primary doctor, um, through e-visits or other channels. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, again, we absolutely have capacity to take care of COVID patients. Um, but we're also starting to worry about where what happened to everybody else. I've been worried about my patients who might be having heart attacks or strokes. Are, where are they? Are they safe? Are they feeling healthy? Um, we want to make sure that we're not having patients with other life-threatening emergencies staying home because of fear of COVID, mm-hmm. where they're not getting the timely care that they need to stay safe and to be healthy. 
I will say I've talked to some people who something has happened to them where they might normally go to an urgent care or even go to an emergency room, and they're worried that going there, it's got to be such an incubator for germs. They're worried that that's going to violate all the good staying at home they've done and that it's better just to tough it out. You're saying that's not the right decision right there. Yeah, so it definitely depends on the situation. Um, if you, but if you're having a real emergency, including things like if you tripped and fell down and broke your arm, please do not stay at home with a broken arm. We want to help you and set the bones. Um, and we do have a lot of plans in place to try and keep our patients safe. Um, we have adequate protective equipment for all of our staff in the Barnes Emergency and Children's Emergency Departments. Um, and I know that's been the case throughout the city at all of our partner hospitals. Um, we have a lot of protocols in place to keep our patients distanced um, so they're not having unnecessary exposures. Um, so we really do want you to still be coming into the hospital if you're having an emergency. If you're not really feeling that sick and you're not sure if you're actually sick, we do have options for telehealth visits if you're an established patient, and we are um, laying the infrastructure now to open that up to all patients. Hmm. Well, if you're listening to this conversation where we're talking to Dr. Kristen Mueller, an emergency medicine physician at, at the Barnes Jewish Hospital and, and several other local hospitals, we want to encourage you to join the call. Um, if you were headed to the ER with COVID-19 symptoms or heading in with something else, what would you want to know? What questions do you have about the treatment process? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or you can email us at talk at STL publicradio.org. Now, Dr. Mueller, you mentioned the personal protective equipment, and and you said that you guys do have enough there uh, that you need as physicians. But how does it change the job to be doing it in a mask and with all this extra gear, um, you know, necessary stuff to protect yourself? But I imagine it adds a layer of complication. It really does. Um, So we're very grateful, again, to have access to the protective equipment. And um, while we have enough of it, we are using it in different ways than it was designed. All of our N95 masks, which are the ones that you may have heard about in the news, that really help protect against the viral infection for healthcare workers and other frontline providers, um, are meant to be single use. And we've been very innovative in our processes to sterilize, um, to sterilize them and maximize their use for weeks to months instead of just you know 10 or 15 minutes like they might have been designed to. Um, And that process has been working in terms of we have not had any documented infections among our hospital staff in the Barnes Emergency Department. That's um, great. So these sterilization measures, that's something new, but it sounds like it's working. Yeah. And then being very vigilant in how we wear our protective equipment. In terms of what life looks like in a shift now, it is different. It certainly feels a bit more awkward to be interacting with people coming in with COVID symptoms or even just regular symptoms through our big face mask with goggles on or a face shield on. So we're not going to look quite the same to patients as we did before. Um, And it can be a little bit more exhausting to wear that protective equipment throughout the shift. Um, For example, yesterday I worked at Children's Hospital in the emergency department, and I kept my N95 mask on for the entire shift. Oh, my goodness. Because the highest risk times are when we were taking our masks on and off, or the donning and doffing procedure, if you will. And that's when we're highest risk for scattering the viral particles around. So I found it feels safer to just leave the equipment on. But (laughs) we're really very thirsty by the end of the shift. Yeah. So does that mean you're not able to even take a drink of water for that entire shift? Yes. And I will say that's personal choice. We do have protocols in place if 
if I really needed to have a drink of water, certainly if my colleagues did, we, we do have ability to make that happen. We're not restricting but, um, food and water to our healthcare providers, but it has changed things for sure. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, I hate to sound like such a wimp, but that sounds terrible. And I, I'm glad to hear that you're <laughs> keeping such good spirits about it, because I think I would be complaining nonstop. So that's that's obviously one complication. I, I'm also wondering, when I talk to people, even at the grocery store, I have a mask on, they have a mask on. We just have some difficulty mm-hmm. communicating. I feel like I'm I'm kind of shouting. I'm not sure if they're hearing me. We can't use that nonverbal communication. Do you run into that with patients? <laughs> We do. It's been a challenge, um, especially for some of our patients who are older or people who may have um, issues with their hearing at baseline, um, who might rely on reading lips to be able to communicate. It's been a lot harder. And in part of all of this, we have special equipment like viral filters, which are kind of like, they look like air humidifiers or air purifiers. They're sucking the viral particles out of the air in some of our rooms, which just add kind of this extra fan hum. And in addition to all of the normal background noise of the emergency department. So it can be a challenge. Um, So I do apologize to any patients who come in and feel like we're shouting at you. (laughs) It's not because we want to be shouting in your face, but we are just trying to communicate to the best of our abilities through all the equipment and to make sure that you can hear us. Yeah, I imagine that's such a challenge. And I imagine in some of these cases, you're probably having to have pretty serious conversations with people. Somebody might be coming in who is very ill with, say, COVID-19. How do you handle that bedside manner aspect when, as you say, you almost feel like you're shouting? Yeah, again, it's been a challenge. Um, And we are seeing patients who are still coming in pretty sick and sick with COVID-19 in particular. I've had a handful of patients now that I've cared for personally who've come in in respiratory distress, so working very hard to breathe um, with very high oxygen requirements, so they're not getting enough oxygen in their bloodstream, so Mm -hmm. we have to put oxygen masks on them. Um, I've had patients who we've needed to potentially put on the ventilator. And having these conversations when patients are already feeling really sick about what their goals of care are or what they would want from the healthcare system when they're having these acute illnesses... And this can be conversations in terms of, would you want to go on the ventilator at all? Mm. Would you want to have CPR if your heart stopped beating? Would you want other aggressive measures like strong antibiotics or medicines to keep your blood pressure up? And these are conversations that in an ideal world, we would be having in a calm, quiet room. We would have family members present. We'd have um, support staff from palliative care and other services. And a lot of that has been a challenge with um, needing to maintain protection for our healthcare workers and protection for the patients too. So we and to minimize the spread of the disease. So in a lot of situations now, patients aren't having family members with them at the bedside in a way that we could before. Um, again, this is to minimize the risk of family members getting infected or spreading COVID if they are infected already and maybe don't realize it mm-hmm. uh, because we know asymptomatic carriers are a serious part of this disease process. Um, if you're listening to this and you know that you have chronic medical conditions or this is something that you've considered before, I would, or even if you haven't, I would encourage you to have these hard conversations with your family while everybody's at home and feeling healthy about what you would like end-of-life care to look like or serious illness care to look like in terms of going on the ventilator or getting CPR. With the caveat that if you get to the point where your heart stops beating and you might need CPR, 
you would be unlikely to survive without going on the ventilator. Those two usually go hand in hand. So people really are are almost thinking of their end-of-life directives here. How much extra help do they want to stay alive when it might impact their quality of life? Exactly. And it's tough. I mean, these are conversations that we don't talk about at the societal level very often. These are conversations that are still hard for a lot of physicians and nurses to be having with our patients. And now it's even trickier with all of the added challenges of the COVID clinical care setting. Mm-hmm. And this and, is why if you've talked about this already with your families before you come in, it's maybe less of a surprise that we might be addressing this with you. And the whole reason we're having these talks is not to withdraw care or minimize care or anything like that. But we really want to make sure that we're providing care that's in line with patients' wishes. What happens when you're unable to have those conversations with patients? Say they they come in extremely ill and it's, it's almost too late to have that conversation. Is that something where you have to make the call? You're making the best guess of, of what they might want? We do. Um, usually, even in extreme illness situations, we still have time to check the medical record and find out if they've had an advanced directive or have expressed their wishes to other healthcare providers in our system before. But a lot of times we do just have to use our best judgment, and we will usually default to a maximal amount of care. Mm-hmm. So if somebody needs to be on the ventilator and they can't tell us um, if clinically it looks that looks like what they need, we will take those steps. Okay. So if people want fewer interventions, that's the really important time that they will want those advanced directives because you're going to do the maximum um, for the patients if you don't know. Correct. And I am glad to say that we do have the resources in all of our St. Louis hospitals right now to be providing maximum services to everybody who needs them. We are not having to ration ventilators yet. We're not having to ration ICU beds. And if things stay on their current trajectory, I think it's unlikely that that'll happen in this first wave of COVID that we're in right now, which is great. It's a real testament to how the the stay-at-home orders have made a difference. We're talking to Dr. Kristen Mueller of Barnes-Jewish Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and Barnes-Jewish West County Hospital. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation. We're talking to Dr. Kristen Mueller of Barnes Jewish Hospital and St. Louis Children's Hospital. She's also a professor at the Washington University School of Medicine. Now, Dr. Mueller, when our producer talked to you a bit more than a week ago, at that point, you still weren't able to test people if they were coming into the emergency room and had just very mild COVID-19 symptoms. I'm wondering if that's still the case. Um, Thank you for that question. I'm happy to report that our testing capabilities have been increasing every day, really since COVID started in our region. And we do have capacity to test a lot of patients now. Um, There's very few patients who need to be admitted to the hospital or who even are coming in with the less severe symptoms who we don't have capacity to test anymore. That's great. And we also have, it is great news. Um, And we haven't exceeded our testing capacity any day this week. So we have more tests available than what have been run. So then are, uh, are, also, are you able to ahead. sort of sort out patients like, hey, we know this one has it, this one doesn't, and you can then treat them differently? Or do you have to assume they, they might also get it in the coming days and they're just not a positive test right now? Um, that part's a little trickier. Um, we've got a couple different assays or different types of tests that we're using. 
So we have, um, for patients where we really need to know yes or no, do you have COVID right now because it will impact our clinical care, our tests are getting quite quick with turnarounds within just a few hours. Hmm. Um, for patients who will, who it might not change what's going to happen to them in the next 24 hours, um, we triage some of the tests to be a little bit less quick, um, but still most of those answers are coming back um, on the scope of hours to days rather than days to weeks, which is what we were looking at earlier on. And then we've also been able to have a lot of testing sites set up throughout the city. Mm -hmm. So if you're having mild symptoms, but you don't think that you need to be in the hospital, there's a number of hotlines that you can call both through um, BJC and the other health systems in town to get outpatient testing set up. And those are mostly through drive-in centers. And I think a couple at um, regional health centers in North City. And Dr. Mueller, you also mentioned that in some cases, people are coming in who have COVID-19 and they're very, very ill. Um, are you worried that people are maybe waiting a bit too late to come in because they're worried you're swamped when it sounds like you guys are kind of on top of things? Yeah, uh, that is a very real concern. Again, if you're having serious Ill, signs of serious illness, we do want you to come into the hospital sooner than later. And this can look like a lot of different things. COVID is turning out to be a great mimicker of many other illnesses. Hmm. So what we've heard about in the media to date is a lot of the respiratory symptoms, the difficulty breathing, the cough, uh, maybe congestion and fever. Um, but there's a subgroup of people who might only have GI symptoms like nausea and vomiting. Um, I've seen a handful of patients who come in with only seizures as they're presenting complaints, some with known seizure history, um, some people who've never had seizures before. Um, and I'm sure there's more mimics of other diseases that I just haven't personally encountered and we're still gathering hmm. data on. But in general, to anybody who may be listening, serious signs of illness, both for COVID and for other things like heart attacks or strokes, um, which would be reasons to come to the hospital, would be, for example, if last week you could walk around the block and today you can only walk down the hall um, because you're getting short of breath or you're feeling dizzy or short of breath even just standing up from your chair. Um, if you've got new numbness or weakness in one of your arms or legs or your speech is changing, either you your speech is becoming very slurred or possibly you can't express your words or your words don't make sense anymore, so you're making sentences that are confusing to the people around you, those can all be signs of stroke. Hmm. And if you think you might be having a stroke, we don't want you to sit at home and see if it gets better. We want you to call 911 or jump in your car and come straight to the hospital because with diseases like strokes and heart attacks, coming in right away makes a big difference to how effective our treatments are and how well you do afterwards. It's interesting hearing you talk about this disease and, and what a great mimicker it is. It seems like our understanding of this disease is almost shifting day to day. It's it's so new and it's so complicated. We're learning all these new things. How do you ever stay on top of that when you're there at the front lines? Oh, my gosh. That, has been the, that is the real question. Um, so you're right. Everything's been changing basically continuously. Um, it was the hardest at the beginning when it when we were really learning about just tons of new information about this disease every single day. And our hospital policies and our guidelines and our treatment plans were changing on a daily basis. We're learning a little bit more about it now, and our testing guidelines are becoming more standardized, and we're having a better grasp of what treatments are needed. Um, but it has been a challenge. So we've responded to this in a number of ways. Certainly at the national level, every medical professional organization is putting out guidelines and webinars and continuing medical education to try and keep physicians and other healthcare providers up to date. Um, the CDC has been 
a good resource. And then locally, we've had a number of webinars and lectures and teaching, all done remotely, of course, um, through, for our physician group, for our hospital groups, um, and for emergency groups in particular, to make sure that we're staying on top of the mm-hmm. knowledge. Um, and several physicians who are specifically tasked to try and keep everybody in the loop on what we should be doing. Well, it, it's good to know that on top of the grueling work you have to do every day, that there's also homework on top of that. I mean, what a <laughs> what a challenge this is for all you guys. As your understanding of this disease continues to evolve, I'm wondering if it feels more scary to you or, or less scary to you now that you're kind of getting a handle on it. Yeah, um, I would say my feelings about that change day by day, depending on the information that we have. But in general, I think we're moving in the right direction. A lot of my fears early in the COVID pandemic stemmed from lacks of personal protective equipment, worries that our hospital staff would be succumbing in large numbers and that I would have to be providing critical care to my friends and colleagues. Um, and certainly we've done a great job of keeping our staff um, and medical providers safe, which is mm-hmm. excellent. Um, and phase, or the other side of that was that we would have, my worries, that we'd have so many patients coming in in huge waves that we wouldn't be able to provide them with high levels of care. And the fact that we're having enough resources to keep our patients safe, to provide them with the care that we need, that we haven't had to ration medical care, has been very encouraging, and it was really a testament to the work that has happened at every level of healthcare in the city and the county, of course, in the whole region. And that is that is so good to hear. And I know you're in the thick of things, and, and you guys have so um, much difficulty you're dealing with right now, but it's good to know that there is that silver lining. You're not swamped. You're able to handle it. These plans have worked. They have. And I will uh, make a caveat to listeners that it's hard now that the weather's getting nicer. We've been hearing about COVID constantly for weeks, months now. And there's a lot of temptation to start lifting um, our restrictions and going out and seeing people again in a way that we hadn't been doing in recent weeks. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage you to continue to stay at home. And especially if you're privileged enough to have a space to be sheltering in place, to keep doing that. Um, because it really does make a difference to containing the spread of COVID in our communities. And the reason that our hospitals have been able to have so many resources to offer to our patients is because of the individual responsibility people in St. Louis have been taking. And I encourage you to keep doing that moving forward because we're not out of the woods yet. Again, this week is really when we're predicted to peak. We don't know what our levels of community spread are because we have not had widespread community testing, especially for people without symptoms. Mm-hmm. Um, and this disease is not conquered, if you will, just yet. That's an excellent point. This is not the time for the victory lap. So, Dr. Kristen Mueller, thank you so much for joining us today and, and sharing these insights. Thank you very much for having me. And good luck to you and your colleagues as you continue to handle all these cases. Um, and, and Dr. Mueller, again, is at uh, Barnes Jewish Hospital, St. Louis Children's Hospital, and Barnes Jewish West County Hospital. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.